Hey, welcome to Tape to Tape, powered by the new Ram 1500 Sport, built exclusively for Canadians. I'm Ryan Dixon. I'm a writer at sportsnet.ca. Joining me, as usual, our NHL editor, Rory Boylan. Rory, we're going to speak with Gear Joyce of the Features team a little later on about a story he wrote that's sort of connecting what happened 101 years ago when the Stanley Cup final was called off in progress due to a Spanish influenza in 1919. Obviously, there are some parallels to what we are going through right now. As we sit here, we do not know if there will be a cup winner in 2020. So we're going to speak to Gare about that piece that he wrote. But before we do that, I'm going to read you something. I want you and the listeners to listen to this, and it'll help us get into the spirit of what we're going to talk about first here. Are you ready? I'm ready. Let's do it. All right, this is something that may or may not have been written in 2003. Almost 20 years after taking his first shift in the NHL, Steve Iserman finally has his Stanley Cup. On a night packed with storylines, none resonated more than the 37-year-old captain of the Ottawa Senators checking off the last and largest box in what will surely be a Hall of Fame career. 16 months ago, Eiserman helped lead Canada to its first Olympic gold medal in 50 years at the 2002 Salt Lake City Games. Now he's legitimized the youngest of Canada's six NHL franchises by lifting Ottawa to a championship nearly 11 years after the modern version of the team began play. When the Senators defeated the Anaheim Mighty Ducks 3-1 in the seventh game of the 2003 final last night, It marked the first time a Canadian team had claimed the cup since the Montreal Canadiens won it a decade ago during the same 1992-93 season that served as the Sens' maiden NHL voyage. I don't think it's fully sunk in that I finally got to do that, Iserman said of hoisting the sport's most cherished trophy. Well, if you can't tell, Rory, we are in the land of make-believes. We are in the land of what-ifs. That is from something I wrote a few years back in a special what-if edition of Sportsnet magazine that, of course, um, theorized about what would have happened had the Red Wings actually pulled the trigger on one of those trades in 1996 when they couldn't get over the hump and there were all those rumors that Iserman might go to Quebec City or uh, home, as it were, to Ottawa. The trade we had worked out was sending Alexi Yashin back the other way, and the Red Wings basically just clipped on with their Russian Red Machine winning three cups. But Ottawa, of course, almost, almost made the cup final in 2003, lost in seven games at home in the seventh game to Jeff Friesen and the New Jersey Devils, who went on to beat the Ducks thought maybe Eisenman might have been able to push them over the top and maybe we wouldn't be talking about a 30-year Canadian Cup drought. Maybe it would actually still almost be 20 now, now that I think about it. Yeah, wow. You know what? I love these what-if exercises and now I'm trying to picture Steve Eisenman in an Ottawa Senators jersey and what that would look like and you know if anybody is going to take a team over the top that's the kind of guy that would do it right sure uh, would be Eisenman and if if that young Senators team had a guy that turned into the leader that he was with Steve Eisenman um, I mean it opens up all sorts of what if like what what are those seasons afterwards after the trade look like how do the drafts work out the team's gonna look different in a lot of ways but at the core of that yeah I mean you add a guy like Eisenman and 
hypothetically, that is enough to give you that boost in Game 7 against New Jersey to get to the Cup Final. One little peek behind the curtain. I mean, we were just firing emails all over the place, going back and forth about which ones we would actually do. And we just pared it down to a couple because I do think you can do such deep dives. You know, there's the big ones that maybe we will touch on in the future. What if uh, the Quebec Nordiques don't trade Eric Lindros or trade him but to the New York Rangers or Patrick Waugh and Mario Tremblay don't have a split? There's so many of them we can go into that are foundational NHL topics and things that really define the uh, a path for for Team X versus Team Y. We're going to keep it a little more contemporary with the two we're going to talk about here today. And one has a nice tie-in to that 2003 Ottawa team, which Eiserman wasn't actually on, but Wade Redden was. And if you ask any Senators fan, they will probably very clearly remember the time when the Sens basically had to make a call in the new cap world between hitching their wagon to Wade Redden on the blue line or Zidane Chara. Now, of course, what did happen was the Sens decided to marry Redden and Zidane Chara wound up signing in 2006 with the Boston Bruins. Pete Chiarelli, who had worked with Ottawa, had just become the GM of the Bruins. I believe he technically couldn't actually do deals for the Bruins. Yes. I don't think he'd assumed the full responsibilities at that point. But of course, he certainly knew the player very, very well from his time in Ottawa. Chara probably is the best free agent signing of all time. I was thinking, like, is there a guy out there who it seems it seems weirder that he played for two teams other than the team you will associate him forever with, right? It wasn't just Ottawa. He, he was in New York for four years with the Islanders before the trade yeah. that sent him to the Senators. But what if, Rory, the Senators had decided to go with Chara as opposed to Wade Redden? You know, the fallout on all sides could have been unbelievable. I mean, yeah. I mean, so... The the way it ended up is Redden signed a two-year deal for a $6.5 million cap hit in Ottawa, and Chara signed a $7.5 million cap hit and a five-year term with Boston, which seems crazy that this is even a, a, a decision to make at this point. But, of course, at that point, it was. In his first season with Boston, Chara was the league leader in ice time. He trailed Redden in power play time the last year that they played on the same team. He got more power play time than Redden after he moved to Boston. It was then that he really started to take off as... Like, we already knew he was a number one defenseman, right? But he really, really took off um, after he got into Boston. And I think the most natural what-if here for Senators fans is, what if you kept Char instead of Redden? Would that have been enough to win the 2007 Stanley Cup when Ottawa did get to the final and lost to the Anaheim Ducks. And I don't know where you landed on this, Ryan, but for me, Chara was great, but I don't think he was enough to overcome. That Ducks team was absolutely loaded. They beat the Senators in five games, so it's not like it was a it was a close series. And, and Redden, that was the first year after this decision. Redden still was not a bad defenseman. Like He was used heavily by that team. He wasn't really a, a massive liability or anything like that. So I don't think... In that series, it would have been enough. Chara would have been the difference between Ottawa winning the Cup or not. For me, it was more about the next three or four years after that and how different the Senators might have looked. Because after that Cup final loss, Redden really started to fall off a cliff. He only stayed in Ottawa for those two years. 
then signed in New York with the Rangers anyway. And two years after that, he was basically an AHL player. So it's after that Stanley Cup final loss, that's where the difference really starts to set in for me, where if you had Chara, maybe you don't miss the playoffs and two of those four years. Maybe you win some of those playoff series. They, you know, The next three times they got into the playoffs, they lost in the first round. So I think having a guy like Chara definitely sets you up better for that long-term access. And then you look at like the guys that were going to land in Ottawa before long, like 2009-10, the year before Boston won the Stanley Cup with Chara. That was the first year Eric Carlson was in the league. 2011-12, he really took off. Like You could be looking at a world where Chara and Eric Carlson on his ELC are manning the same blue line. And that changes everything too for the Ottawa Senators. So for me, from an Ottawa perspective, we, we haven't even gotten in the Boston side of this, but from an Ottawa perspective, it was more about those years 2007-8 onwards and how much better they could have been if they had kept Chara. I have to admit, I don't recall exactly what the lay of the land was in Ottawa in terms of whether there was any world where they could have kept both of them. Um, but at my recollection of it is it was always going to be one or the other. They are the same age, which kind of seems hilarious because in my mind, it feels like Wade Redden should be five years older than Zidane Chara who, by the way, is still playing in the NHL. Wade Redden, last seen seven years ago, playing with Zidane Char and the Boston Bruins. Six games with the Bees to finish out his career in the shortened season, uh, 2012-2013, the year uh, it was shortened by a lockout. In that last year, they were both together in Ottawa, 05-06. Wade Redden finished fifth. As a 28-year-old in his age 28 season, fifth in Norris Trophy voting, Zidane Chara finished fourth in his age 28 season. They are both 77s, though, as I noted. So, yeah, I mean, if you want to get into it from the Boston side, I mean, obviously, as I said, this is probably the best free agent signing in the history of the league. I mean, he is so ingrained in the fabric of that franchise. He's been the captain there for so long and one interesting lens to look at this through is let's say he does stay in Ottawa you know it was only a few months before Chara signed with the Bruins that Boston traded mid-season the first year back after the lost season traded Joe Thornton to the San Jose Sharks now when you consider that they really didn't get anything back for Joe Thornton in that trade you know, it was certainly considered then and for a long time, I think, to be, you know, a giant whiff on the part of the Bruins, especially since he went on to to win the MVP in that year, the only player to be traded during a season when he actually won the Hart Trophy. I mean, Marco Sturm was a good soldier for the Bruins, but, you know, getting Brad Stewart, Marco Sturm, and Wayne Primo was never going to seem like enough for trading Joe Thornton. However, Losing Thornton did clear some cap space, and they they used that very wisely to sign Chara. So had they not, maybe we'd be looking at the Joe Thornton trade as truly one of the most egregious in league history. Yeah, and that's what I was kind of trying to look at from the Boston side of this, is what could they have done had they not used that money on Chara? Because you look at the blue line they had in 2011 when they won the Stanley Cup. Outside of Chara, like... There's not a lot of awesome names. You got Dennis Seidenberg, Johnny Boychuk, 
probably the best of the rest of them. Adam McQuaid. It was a by-committee team other than him, yeah. Yeah, like it seemed like you needed that kind of rock to really set that team apart. And so, you know, there's a lot of these other pieces that were going to fall into place anyway. Like they had Patrice Bergeron. 2006 was the year they drafted Phil Kessel and Brad Marchand. So you had the piece Kessel traded for the two first-round picks, and you had Marchand, you had drafted Lucic. Like you had these pieces already that were coming together. So I think you would have been in line to have a good team. But I started looking like, who are some other free agents? And like Brian Rafalski in 2007 was a free agent who Detroit scooped up. And that's where he finished his career. But is he really a guy who's going to replace Char on the same way? I don't think so. And the next year it was Brian Campbell. And you know, that was a bit of a high expense mistake maybe off of the free agent market. Again, he wouldn't have had the same impact as at Chara. The one that I started to wonder about is if Chara had signed in Ottawa and done it July 1st or just before that or whatever, one day after Chara did sign in Boston was the day Edmonton traded Chris Pronger to Anaheim. And I wonder if Chara was not there and you didn't sign Redden, is that a trade that Boston maybe could have made? You know, Anaheim gave up a couple of first round picks, a second, Joffrey Lupo and Ladislav Schmid. Boston was not a great team at that time. They could have offered the better... Uh, first round pick. And that year, I believe they picked eighth overall, took Zach Hamill in 2007, who was a miss. That is maybe something that they would have explored. And maybe it doesn't come together and you're not as good. And if you're not as good without Chara, you get higher draft picks and everything like that. And then I look a little bit further down the road in 2010. And I found this story that I had forgotten about that. And again, this is before they win the Stanley Cup, but that team still was set up to make some progress. So in 2010, Boston was reportedly very, very close to landing Pronger from Anaheim for a collection of futures. So maybe if you don't land Chara and you're just kind of putting along, making slower advances of as a team in those three or four years, maybe in 2010, you still can make that Pronger trade. Maybe you're a little bit more aggressive at it because you don't have Chara to fall back on. And maybe you end up getting Pronger a little bit more delayed. In 2010, you end up winning the cup anyways. But there's this is, this is why I love the what-ifs. There's all these grand possibilities. And if any one of them what happened, the domino effect of everything else that would happen after that, it's so much fun to explore these exercises. Well, the draft lottery is a real boon to the what-if exercise and in 2015 the Toronto Maple Leafs had the fourth worst record in the NHL there was some fella named Connor McDavid available at the top of the draft it was the last year before the NHL went to the system where there was a lottery for the top three picks Buffalo was last 30th in the league Arizona was 29th. Edmonton was just ahead, quote unquote, of the Leafs at 28th. Of course, Edmonton leapt up and got the first pick. Buffalo knew it was getting McDavid or Jack Eichel. But if you remember the look on Tim Murray's face at the draft lottery, he was clearly hoping for Jack Eichel. Rory, what if the Toronto Maple Leafs had won that draft lottery one year before they did win and drafted Austin Matthews, what if they had drafted a guy who grew up just up the road in Newmarket in Connor McDavid? I mean, <laughs> this is going to drive a lot of people mad, right? I mean, they going into that last lottery ball, Toronto had the best odds to win the lottery and end up with the first overall pick. So this almost happened. And how would that have changed things? I mean, first of all, they have a different centerpiece that they're going to build their team around that Edmonton 
lax at that point. And then what does Edmonton do at that point? Who would they have picked coming out of that draft and who would have been there? That to me is a really tough one. Edmonton just is going to be slower coming on to this. This is basically Toronto trading Mitch Marner for Connor McDavid. You wonder if Edmonton makes that pick or not. I don't know. Like That's the trouble here. Is it Toronto trading Mitch Marner and Austin Matthews for Connor McDavid? Because if Connor McDavid steps into your lineup and plays for you in 2015-16, maybe you don't finish last and end up with Austin Matthews. Well, so here's where I landed on that. Like Toronto still was not a good team in that year, obviously. And neither was Edmonton. After Edmonton drafted Connor McDavid that first year, they still finished second last in the league. Now, granted, he did get hurt. He only played 45 games. So maybe he stays healthy for the full season in Toronto and that changes things. But Edmonton still was the second worst team. So it's still very possible. I think Nazem Kadri led the Leafs in scoring that year with 45 points or something like that. So they were not a great team. So it's very plausible that they add Connor McDavid and Toronto still finishes like second last in the league or something like that. And so they could still end up with a very high pick. What I wondered is if this ends up in a way where, say it ends up the same way, where, okay, Edmonton takes Mitch Marner that in 2015, they finish worse the year after, they draft Austin Matthews first overall. And say, you you know, it works out the opposite for Toronto, where Toronto gets McDavid, the next year they finish second last, and then they end up picking where Edmonton does, which I believe was fourth. Fourth, yep. Right, that's where Edmonton took Jesse Pogliarvi. I wonder, instead of it being Matthews and Marner for McDavid, if this is a situation where had Toronto ended up with McDavid, it's a better situation for both teams. Because Toronto, very possibly, instead of taking Jesse Pogliarvi, remember, Mark Hunter was still a very big factor in that organization at that time. And in the Marner draft, there was a real decision to be made on, was it Mitch Marner or Noah Hannafin that you took? And and a lot of people thought Hannafin was the guy you went with. But because of... The connection with the London Knights, that had a big part of why they took Mitch Marner. You know who they had a really close tie with a a London Knight in in the next draft was Matthew Kachuk. So it's very possible that Toronto ends up with Connor McDavid and Matthew Kachuk, along with Nylander, who is already there. And Edmonton ends up with Matthews and Marner instead of McDavid and Pugliarvi. So is that a situation where actually that works out better for both teams? (laughs) It's crazy. I, Rory, I do not think this is going to be the last time we do this. I don't think so. This is too much fun. There are like historical things that we can get into. And I think, Ryan, it would be really great, especially for these historical ones, if we even get a guest on who lived it and breathed it and yeah. can give us a little bit of insight into what was going on through their eyes through some of these. So I think these are the kinds of things we can have a little fun with through this pause because it just all these hypotheticals it's fantasy hockey in a time when we have no hockey well uh speaking of history we are going to bring garrett joyce on here garrett wrote a great piece about the 1919 stanley cup final which was called off because of the spanish influenza that ripped through north america quite a story from gare looking back at what things were like then and just you know he wrote a fair bit about just the coverage in general and i think some listeners will be interested to hear uh, what it was like then how newspapers were covering this very serious world event 101 years ago so stick around gear joyce joins us very shortly on tape to tape
Welcome back to Tape to Tape. We are pleased to be joined now by Sportsnet's features writer. It is Garrett Joyce. Garrett, how are you today? How are we all? What can I say? No kidding. I've been asking people, uh, everyone we speak with, where are we reaching you? Are you in a kitchen? Are you in a living room? Uh, are you in a basement? Where are you right now? I'm in the bedroom. Okay. For I think better acoustics in here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not surprised that you put some consideration into that. Welcome. We want to speak to you about the big read you wrote that ran on sportsnet.ca on Sunday. It is about, I guess, the parallels in many ways between what happened 101 years ago in 1919 versus what we're seeing right now as uh, COVID-19 um, colors uh, the existence of, of everyone on the planet, really. But as many people are probably aware, the 1919 Stanley Cup final was called off while in progress due um, to a Spanish influenza, as it was known, but beyond that, a lot of people may not know too much. Can you just bring us up to speed on what exactly occurred in 1919 when Seattle and Montreal were playing for the Stanley Cup? So back in those days, it actually wasn't simply a NHL competition. The Seattle Metropolitans were in the Pacific League, and it was a crossover challenge against the NHL champion which was the Montreal Canadiens, and all games were going to be played in Seattle. The Canadiens took the train out there, and through the first five games, the series stood at 2-2-1. Two, two, and one. There was an overtime tie after two periods of overtime. They just said, we'll walk away on this one and try it another day. So it was probably a little makeshift when you get down to it. <laughs> but... Um, before game six and what would have been the deciding game, the Canadians GM, George Kennedy, told the Metropolitans, we've had a flu bug going through the team. We can't even ice a team. And there was a thought for a time of bringing in players from Victoria, from the Pacific League to make a, some sort of game out of it. But in the end, Discretion prevailed, and the Canadians were prepared to forfeit the series. And the Metropolitans, maybe with a little pressure from the Pacific League commissioner, declined to take a win by forfeit and just walked away with the series unconcluded. So, Gary, as I was reading it, I think something that struck me, both from a hockey perspective and just from a general news perspective, was how the influenza and everything around it was being covered, which today as we go through COVID-19, that's all everybody is talking about and writing about and everything. But it was a little bit different in 1919 for the Spanish influenza, wasn't it? Yes. Well, the big outbreak of the influenza was in the previous year, 1918, just as World War I was breaking down and reaching its conclusion in November. That was really sort of the end of the peak period of the Spanish flu. And it was unreported strategically. There was an effective embargo on newspapers reporting about the thousands and really millions that were dying of the flu in the Western world because it was perceived that 
such news would give comfort to the enemy. So really, it was propaganda by embargo as much as anything else. So really, there wasn't a ton of coverage in the run-up to the armistice in uh, 1918, November 1918. So it was underreported. And that's made an accounting of the Spanish flu very difficult is because the records sort of papered over. And the estimates run anywhere from 25 million to 100 million worldwide. So only later when a Spanish monarch contracted the Spanish flu, it was only the flu before he contracted it. And that's when media started to label it the Spanish flu. Spain was neutral. They had no dog in the hunt in World War I. And so that allowed newspapers to reference it. And they were a little more forthcoming about it over time. But even in the reporting at the time of the 1919 Stanley Cup, it was only referred to as an influenza. It was not referred to as the Spanish flu. And you know what? There weren't great gobs of detail about the illness of the players. I'm just wondering if readers at the time could read between the lines and maybe would have a better understanding of what the players were going through than we might a century later and really didn't need much more expansion on it. I guess the the thing that struck me was the Canadians were only so big back then. The NHL was in its second year. So, I mean, maybe it had something along the lines of XFL status. they, (laughs) they, they They were effectively buried in the Gazette sports section back in the day. The news of the cancellation of the Stanley Cup final, if you know the layout of a newspaper, it appeared in a middle column halfway down the page under a notice for a meeting of the Caledon Curling Club. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) Right? So, I mean, it was not big news. When Joe Hall, the defenseman, died shortly after the cancellation, that received a fuller treatment. But, you know, they were not front page news. They were not a big sensation. They were effectively a sports novelty back then. Boxing owned the sports section. There was reporting of professional wrestling, like it was completely on the square or something like that. It was an entirely different sports culture. And it's hard to imagine the Montreal Canadiens as we think of them as the historic franchise, they were an expansion franchise in an expansion league back then. It was all new ground. So all the rich traditions weren't there. So it is sort of shocking to see treatment of the Stanley Cup in a Montreal newspaper with the Montreal Canadiens sort of not be very big news. Well, one thing you mentioned that you would think did grab people's attention a bit more was the death of Joe Hall. The series itself was called off 101 years ago to the day. We're recording on Wednesday, April 1st. It was April 1st, 1919 that they called it off. I believe it was six days later that Joe Hall died. What can you tell us about who he was as a player and fill a little backstory in for us? Because as you noted in the piece, the Montreal Gazette, perhaps not acting in the best taste, announced his death to the world that he had a quote unquote checkered past. 
Yeah, I'm trying to think of an analogous player more recent, but he might have been the Eddie Shore of his yeah. time. He wasn't just the most penalized player. I mean, he was drawing 100 minutes in penalties across a very short season. And the second most penalized player in the league might have had 50. So he was a tough defenseman. He had played previously for the Quebec Bulldogs and had come over to Montreal when the Bulldogs suspended operation a couple of years before. He was the oldest player in organized hockey at the time. He was 37. Originally from Brandon, Manitoba, he was a stay-at-home defenseman with a mean streak. So I was going to say, I mean, this is obviously unique subject matter. How did you go about putting this story together? I mean, we saw you referenced, obviously, going through the Montreal Gazette, the Seattle Times. Just what was your approach to put this piece together? Oh, my God. It was a bit of a challenge. I have to say that these are the types of stories that I enjoy writing. My challenge was that as soon as I set about to write it, the city closed down, including the Metro Toronto Public Library. So all the archives, including the Gazette's archives, were sort of inaccessible. Through a couple of contacts, I was able to get a bunch of screen grabs of the Gazette papers back then. What was a boon to me was the U.S. Library of Congress's newspaper archive. And it is absolutely comprehensive and and easily searchable that it would have the Seattle Times back in 1919 with quick references. Like I just put in Canadians with a knee and and the state of Washington and the entire series rolled out for me. Right. Nice. uh, for any any students out there, anyone uh, looking to do a history paper, I strongly recommend that you go to the U.S. <laughs> Library of Congress where they have, I don't know if they say 16 million newspapers on file. But, so that was a game saver to me. There was a couple of other sources that were really good. There was a history of the Spanish flu that I mentioned in the piece that provided some really interesting background. The one nugget that came out of that, and the one thing that my research about the flu, more than the series itself, and that people would reasonably wonder, how does a defenseman like Joe Hall, who's on the ice the entire time in the game five overtime game, like literally two weeks before he died, how does someone that physically fit succumb to a flu so quickly. And the reason is sort of counterintuitive. When people died of the Spanish flu, often they were perceived that the flu had killed them. But for a lot of people in a younger age group, it was actually a reaction of the autoimmune system that killed them. So in fact, The stronger you were, the stronger your autoimmune system was, the more at risk you were of dying from an autoimmune reaction. You know, when we're talking about the coronavirus now, everyone's saying, well, you know, really a danger zone if you're over 70, over 80 and have pre-existing conditions. The Spanish flu was a counterpoint to that. The age group sort of between 20 and 40 was at very high risk and 
at the time it was perceived that, oh, maybe the people older have developed an immunity to it. Now, wasn't it at all? It's just that their immune systems were, were uh, weaker. And the stronger you are, the stronger your immune system was. That was your greatest danger if you were in that age group. The other thing that was amazing is that the vast majority of deaths happened over a 10-week period in the fall. By the time that the Canadians got it, the Spanish flu hadn't quite run its course, but it was well, well past peak. Gare, just in the last like 20 years, we've seen major change in how the on-ice product of the NHL um, looks. So, you know, you go back 101 years, you're going to see huge, huge changes. And you made reference there to uh, how Joe Hall would basically play the entire overtime of that last game. Game four went two overtimes and ended in a 0-0 tie because they just couldn't go on anymore. So, how really different was the game back in 1919? Benches were shorter and everything like that. How different did everything look? There was virtually no substitutions. If a player was penalized, then a player could come off the bench and take his place. So you actually weren't a man short. You just didn't huh. have the man you started with. And <laughs> the Western League was playing a seven-man game with a rover, which today we talk about how exciting the game is when it's a three-on-three -three overtime. You know, and, <laughs> and back in the day, you had players scattered all over the ice with a rover. But <laughs> And in the Stanley Cup final, they alternated six and seven skater games so not just a home ice advantage but a bit of a home rules advantage as well there's scant footage of that era you know going back to the 20s i mean it's ancient grainy stilted stuff i don't know that there's really any sort of comparison that you could draw between the games that they were playing back in those days it would probably look more like Timbit's images between the first and second period of an NHL game than an actual NHL game. So one last question for you, and I don't know how much you would have got into this, but I think, you know, when COVID-19, when we get over this and the NHL and all these sports leagues eventually return, people are wondering, like, how are things going to be different? And, and after the influenza passed, the NHL did return for the following season. There was no interruption to their season. They just went on. Um, did you come across anything that, that changed the league or the sports landscape in any way because of the Spanish influenza? You know, I've been asked this a couple of times. I don't think really 1919 is analogous to what we're going through now. You know, as I said, the cancellation of the series and the death of Joe Hall, and later George Kennedy, Canadian's GM, died a couple of years later, having never really recovered from the flu. You know what? There wasn't a broad response to the Spanish flu. It was sort of done and gone. I keep thinking that it's going to be more like a 9-11 in the way that 9-11, you just think of how you used to fly back in the year 2000. It was basically like a turnstile at the airport, you know, and in the wake of 9-11, did people immediately see that, oh, you know what, security is going to be so different and check your laptops and no fluids and, you know, background checks and no fly lists. And th there was like a much broader response in the heat of the time, in the immediate aftermath 
than we could have known or even thought about. Our team's going to be more hypersensitive about communicating germs, bacteria. I think so. I mean, I think that that's one way that we'll see a change just in sort of precautions that we'll take, just as there were precautions put in place after 9-11. But I don't know that we're even close to the time that we can start speculating this because I, I really think and fear and dread that we're more in chapter two than reaching the epilogue of all this. Well, yeah, we've all been playing a pretty giant game of what's next here in the world and the sports world. But Rory and I also dialed up some what ifs in our first segment before we let what you go. Have, have you, yeah. Have you got some <laughs> what ifs for us? I got, I have one that is probably out of the box a little bit, but I knew I could uh, count on you. We were yeah. expecting that. <laughs> yeah. So my what if is what if Chris Kreider hadn't run over Carey Price in the 2014 Eastern mm. Conference Final? I mean, that's getting a little narrow, but yeah. So to background it, uh, for those who don't have it immediately in the memory bank, the Canadians who were a good but not great team that year swept. Camp in the first round and then upset Boston in the conference division final. Boston was the best team in the regular season. They meet up with the Rangers who look pretty beatable, more beatable than the Bruins did. And in game one of that series, a Montreal loss, Chris Kreider runs over Carey Price, knocks him out of the game. Not immediately. Carey Price stayed in the net for a few minutes. And then in the third period, uh, Peter Budaj uh, came in to replace. Peter Budaj, was it? Wait, I yeah. was going to say it ended up being Dustin Tokarski, but maybe in that first game it was Budai, right? Yeah, that's right. So it speaks to the Canadians' desperation that the rest of the series, they started a guy who they didn't dress as a backup in game one. You know, like I was trying to project this. There was probably... I mean, unless you're talking about a psychic blower mindset in losing your number one goaltender, did the Canadians flatline a bit emotionally, have trouble processing it in game two, which they lost, I think, 3-1? Was that something that they hadn't quite figured out and flatlined? I don't know, but you know, would they have come out better, sharper, more belief if Price were in the net? There was one game, uh, game four, and it was one of those away teams win the first three games, New York two in Montreal, and then the Canadians game three at Madison Square Gardens. Game four went to overtime, 3-2. Martin St. Louis scored the winning goal. And Tukarski, he had 26 saves on 29 shots through a game and half a period. Would, would Price have found... One of those goals scored in regulation, would he have saved that? You know, and then it becomes a 2-2 series and the Canadians have home ice. I was going to bet you a beer on this. I bet you you can't tell me who was the Canadians' leading goal scorer in that playoff year. Was it Rene Bork? Oh, fuck. Uh, <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. 
<laughs> I only remember that because he was traded for Mike Camilleri, obviously, and about the only time it looked like a good trade was that spring. And I think he got off to, a, even in that spring, a good start and then faltered. Oh, my God. That's a great pull. Yeah, and it wasn't even close. He had eight goals, which I think eclipsed his regular season. It probably did. <laughs> the next nearest was Pacioretty and, and Subban with five apiece. So it had the look and smell of a team of destiny in the way that the 93 Habs were. And, you know, if Price isn't hurt there, if they make the final, do people think of them slightly different? You know, in the Rangers winning that series, Lundqvist, his reputation's elevated. The same thing, I think, would have been in play for Price. I mean, he can pick up and wave his Olympic gold medal. and That's great. But, you know, I mean, maybe his legacy will set up to be a little different that way. And Chris Kreider wouldn't get the shower of booze every time he stepped on the ice. Yeah. <laughs> to this day, it still goes on. Well, they, of course, went on to play the Kings in the final, lost yeah. in five, but three of those five went to overtime. It was actually quite a close final in the first two in L.A. The Rangers pushed it to OT, but couldn't yeah. get a bounce. So, I mean, you would think the Canadians had similar DNA to that Rangers team a bit in that it was always going to take a, a big performance from your goalie. And could you find enough goals after that? But, you know, the New York team went there and actually gave LA a, a pretty good series in the final. It would have changed the look of a few players' careers, I think. You know, would they have beaten LA? I would think that that would have been a long shot. But I want to say that they were at least an even choice, if not the favorite against the Rangers. And the odds shift as soon as Carey Price goes down and you're going to a goalie who had 10 NHL regular season games before he was put in in game two. And after that series, he played 24 more NHL games last seen in the American Hockey League in Wilkes-Barre uh, this interrupted season. So, I mean, he's well outside the NHL now. Yeah, You know, when you go back to when the Canadians went to knock the President's Trophy winning caps out and Price was on the bench for that and they brought in Halak, who was lights out. Dustin Tokarski was not Yaroslav Halak. Right? Like, <laughs> it, was, it was an entirely different story. So I think, I think it changes the look a little. Yeah, well, I mean, as you said, it, it could... Oh, <laughs> Tilt the way you look at uh, at some of players' careers because simply making the final these days is is an achievement. All right, Gary, I hope to be able to take you up on that beer sometime soon, but it's going to be a while yet. It will, hopefully before the leaves turn. All right, we will leave it there. Thank you very much for joining us, sir. Okay, thanks for having me, guys. There he is, Gare Joyce from Sportsnet's features team. Check out everything Gare and the entire... Features team is doing still cranking out uh, new material, dusting off some old awesome stuff as well. Go to sportsnet.ca forward slash big reads. Thanks so much to Gare for joining us today. Thank you to you, Rory, as always, and our producer, Michael Mares. Thanks to everyone out there for listening. Stay safe and check back next week for more glass rattling hockey action on tape to tape. <laughs>